You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of 1 Kings. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. First uh, Kings chapter 11, and Lord willing, we'll be making it through chapter 12 tonight, which means that we are halfway through 1 Kings. Can you believe it? I've been enjoying it a whole lot. But, um, and uh, yeah, so 1 Kings chapter 11, I was going to just warn you guys that I'm using a um, 45 cent battery in my headset tonight, so we'll see how long that lasts. I'm trying to be frugal, you know what I mean? But um, so if we need to take an intermission, that may be happening. Um, First Kings chapter 11, sure is good to see you guys tonight coming out to, to hear the word and, and uh, looking forward to, to hearing from the Lord together tonight. And so, Lord, we do just lift up this time again, Lord, just could, could never pray enough, even just feeling so weak in prayer over the studies, Lord, and just knowing that the, the enemy doesn't fear prayerless studies. And I just want to grow so much in not just doing book work, Lord, but, but praying over the, the studies. And, and so I just pray you'd just be working that in me. And, and Lord, even where I've been weak in that, um, I just pray that you would be strong tonight. And that you would just bring out just specifics for each person in this room, Lord. I know you've drawn them uh, here. I know you've kept others away just for for a reason tonight. And so um, all that is in your heart to accomplish, we just pray you would accomplish. And just do an incredible work of your spirit in this room tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've studied... uh, these first 10 chapters of First Kings, we've seen three different warnings to, to Solomon. Uh, and they all sound very similar. The first one was from David as David was on his deathbed and preparing Solomon to be king. He said, you know, take heed that you keep all of the statutes and all of the testimonies and all of the commandments That the Lord gave Moses when we came out of the land of Egypt. Take heed that you do those things. That your kingdom will be firmly established. And and then in chapter 3 of 1 Kings where where, uh, Solomon is given this incredible wisdom. uh, The Lord, you know, also gave him that warning. I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you even, you know, riches and wealth that you didn't even ask for. But take heed that you do the things that that I've commanded you to do. That you be obedient. And, uh, and then finally we studied last week, just how, you know, Solomon had like kind of a last final chance to be obedient. And it was a much harsher warning, you know, that if he's disobedient, that the kingdom will be, uh, you know, ripped from him and there, the Jerusalem and the temple and that area on the temple Mount will be a desolation and people will go by that city and see where the temple once stood and they'll hiss and Jerusalem will be a byword uh, among the people as they pass by if Solomon is disobedient. And so that leads us to the question tonight, what do Solomon, baseball, and bowling all have in common? Yep, you guessed it. They all have three strikes. With baseball, three strikes and you're out. With bowling, three strikes and you have a turkey. And with Solomon, after these three strikes, dare I go there? 
He's become a turkey, and he's also out of there. And that is where we are at in the middle. Lindsay's just like, I'm so ashamed right now. So ashamed. Sometimes I wish, Lord, you'd just shut his mouth. Keeps you humble, honey. Um, and so we are going to see in this chapter just the, the third strike, and he, he's, he's out of there. And, uh, and so we're going to see just how far um, he has, has gone downhill uh, since we started this book, and, and we've read all of these warnings, and it's been quite a journey with Solomon. But we see in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11 that uh, King Solomon loved many foreign women. King James Version puts it maybe a little better. He loved many strange women. <laughs> and uh, not that they weren't uh, intelligent or or beautiful, or anything like that, but we're going to see later that they were idolaters, and they had many strange practices. He loved many foreign women, as well as the daughters of the daughter of Pharaoh, which we read about clear back in chapter 3. Uh, we read about him marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And so if you go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, uh, we basically, it's funny because the high school group and, and, and us and, and we are going through the first Kings in the same time. And so it's funny as Stuart was kind of studying ahead to teach this, you know, he said, uh, you know, have you ever read uh, a Bible verse and felt like everything it was talking about was you and you failed to keep those things and stuff. And as Solomon would read Deuteronomy 17, you know, he's probably like, check, haven't been keeping that. Check, haven't been keeping that. Check, haven't been keeping that. And as we read Deuteronomy 17, 14, it says, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. You shall set a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And remember, the Lord didn't want them to have a king. He wanted to be their king. And yet, you know, um, the people just were so set in their ways that they wanted to have a king. So Saul was given to them. But then in verse 16, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. And so if you remember last week's study, uh, Solomon had multiplied thousands and thousands of horses and chariots, and he'd even gone and gotten Egyptian horses, just specific disobedience. It's like, go to Russia and get the Russian horses, for goodness sakes. But no, he, he has to be disobedient. I don't even know if Russia was around back then, but need to learn my Soviet history, I guess. But, uh, you know, he went directly to Egypt and got those horses and those chariots. And But then he, it goes on and says, Neither shall this king multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, 
nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And so this chapter we're reading of these, these many wives that he's multiplied. 700 wives and princesses. And uh, that is a multiplication table just waiting to be divided right there. And uh, so he definitely disobeyed there. And then last week we studied all the gold that the other kings gave him where he just became so wealthy that in Israel, you know, uh, finding silver on the ground was nothing. It was like finding a penny. You know, it's like, do I, dare I even waste the energy bending over to pick it up? And, um, and so he would just, you know, there was so much wealth in the kingdom at that time. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. And so, so many disobedience check marks. It just seemed like whatever God wanted Solomon not to do, Solomon did. Just like, you know, when you have little kids and you're like, I'm going to walk out of the room now and, uh, you know, whatever you do, don't go into that closet and don't get your toys out. And that's exactly what they go and did. And, uh, man, we had a scare tonight, as, you know, about 45 minutes before we came here. And, and uh, Russell got up. He was supposed to be eating his sandwich, was supposed to be sitting at the table, got up onto the counter and grabbed my hunting knife that I'd used to carve a pumpkin the other day and um, cut, his, cut himself right between the finger, just a tiny little slit. And when, when we got there, oh, we were just terrified. And, and of course... I was reproved for having my hunting knife on the counter. It was a far, it was far away. I didn't think there's, anyways. Um, but you know, it's like, how many times do I have to tell you sit there and eat your sandwich? You know, and all of a sudden he's up climbing on the counter and it's like, Argh! but uh, you know that was Solomon. It's like, dude, just do what I'm telling you to do. And whatever he was told to do, he was disobedient. He just naturally migrated towards being disobedient uh, to the Lord, but. So where we're at in this section, in chapter 11, he's disobedient in the sense that he multiplied wives for himself, and specifically, he multiplied wives from other nations, foreign wives, wives that were non-believers. And so, you know, we did a deep study on this in chapter 3 when we first heard of him marrying Pharaoh's daughter, a non-believer, but it's always good to be reminded again of the danger that comes from being unequally yoked together with a non-believer. And so um, you guys all know the, the 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 passage, and I'm just going to read it. And maybe it doesn't even apply to anybody in this room tonight, but it, it even probably does in the sense of business associates or, um, or just people that you have in your lives that you're going to need to be bold and speak this verse into their lives so that you know you spare them from getting into a marriage that's gonna that's gonna you know turn their hearts away from the Lord. And so let's just read it again. Uh, it definitely is powerful. But Second Corinthians six fourteen, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? 
And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And so this verse, sadly, within Christianity, it's become cliche. And as people are beginning to date and there is unequally Yokedness, if I may use that, <laughs> you know, there's some unequally yoking going on. Unequal yoking. Boom. There you go. I think I hit it on the head. There's not any English teachers in here, are there? Because I'd be in big trouble. Um, you know, he, he, uh, when, when we see couples getting together unequally, it's like you're, you go to talk with them and they know what's going to come out of your mouth and they, oh, I know, I know, I know, don't be unequally yoked, you know, together with a non-believer. And it's just, it's become cliche. And how is the word of God ever cliche? You know, some of you know Josh Dimmick, who the Lord's been doing a neat work in his life. And he's writing a, a paper on, for, for college on whether one man can affect the identity of a person. And so he's writing his paper on Jesus. And he texts me the other day and he's like, would John 3.16 be too cliche, you know? And I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, maybe to the world, like, they all kind of know it, but it's powerful. It's the Word of God. It's alive. It's active. It's beautiful. And, and I love that verse. And so if the Word to us as Christians ever just becomes a cliche or something, man, we need to repent. And, uh, and you know, even this verse in particular um, there's just great questions. And, and so we see for, uh, for Solomon what the simple compromise of marrying Pharaoh's wife has led to. Oh, just one non-believing wife. You know, just, just one little compromise. And by, you know, probably 40 years later or something, he, he's up to 1,000. You know, he's up to 700 wives and 300 women that he can just uh, be immoral with. And, um, and so we've seen it's, it's done exactly what God said it would do in Deuteronomy. These, these women, these foreign women who serve foreign gods have turned his heart away from the, the living God to worship pagan gods. And I've just, you know, I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I met with a, a close friend of mine from high school who lives in the area and, um, you know, just living with a non-believing gal has for, you know, four to five years and, you know, doesn't want to marry her because uh, she's not a believer and yet been living with her for five years. And so I just really spoke the truth into his life and I took him here to Solomon's life. You know, and I, and I was reminded of our leprosy study the other day, just how when we're in sin, we, we're isolating ourselves. We tend to isolate ourselves. And, and I'm just like, dude, you're in sin. You're like Solomon. You're, you're worshiping other things, and you've isolated yourself from fellowship. And, and so it, it's really affected Solomon, and it even, we're going to see, brings the, the nation of Israel to a point of, of destruction eventually. His compromise has led to destruction, and 
Notice it says that Solomon clung to these in love at the end of verse 2. He clung to these in love. And really we know that it was not love so much as it was lust. But his love for these women took the place of his love for the Lord. And, and uh, I've never done pre-marriage counseling before until last night. And I went through, um, you know, our, we're using uh, our Corvallis pre-marriage handbook that Lindsay and I actually used when we were engaged. And so it was really kind of cool to go through that again. But there's a section of questions that are just, they're the first questions. And, it, you know, they're all about, you know, are you seeking the Lord first with your life? And is your spouse seeking the Lord first with their life? And then one of the questions is, would you ever compromise your relationship with the Lord for your future spouse? And that could be on a, on a huge you know, level that we would call huge, like, oh, well, my spouse is a Mormon. And so I'm going to become a Mormon because my spouse is a Mormon or is a Muslim. And so I'm going to become a Muslim to enter into this. And so... Some of us would say, oh, absolutely not. I would never compromise. I would never become a Muslim. But then, you know, Lindsay and I were just prompted to bring it down to, to home, to a home level. You know, well, what would you do? You know, if, you're, if your spouse, you know, had hobbies and, and a nice boat and all of a sudden every weekend it's, it's time at the lake instead of time with Jesus or it's time for bow hunting instead of time... For Jesus, or it's time for business instead of it's time for Jesus. And we've just seen it so often that, you know, maybe the Lord, maybe this person's not asking you to worship Allah or Joseph Smith or something like that, but they're asking you to worship yourself or a toy or, you know, um, activities, things like that uh, can turn our hearts away from the Lord and cause us to compromise. And so one of the other questions was, it's not. You know, just a matter of marrying a Christian. But the question is, what kind of a Christian are they? You know, is, are the fruits of the Spirit in their lives? Are they giving everything they have to the Lord? You know, and, and maybe perhaps even they're a Christian, but God's put on your heart a call on your life that you've known from your youth maybe, and their call is not that call. You know, and so the question is, well, they're, they're wonderful and they're believers, but there's ways to also tell if it's the person, the right person that the Lord has for you. You know, are they the same type of believer that you are? Do they have the same dreams and passions and visions and callings on their life? And so the issue goes much more even than, well, are they just a Christian, but are they diligently following after the Lord? Do they have the same dreams and hopes that you do? And so, um, so, you know, sadly, we just see this consequence of Solomon's folly that his heart was turned away, we see there by the end of verse 3. And uh, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And so we see that one of Solomon's gods had become the god of pleasure. Just the pleasure of women. And, and first of all, can you imagine remembering all of the names of these wives? It's like, whoa. Issues, man, pre-marriage counseling once a week with a different woman, you know, or, you know whatever. Definitely difficult, I'm sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, Solomon had become a sex addict. And he even admits that he had become that. In Ecclesiastes, 
chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. You know, concubines were specifically for pleasure. Uh, My heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. I'm a rich king, and I want to reward myself with this type of pleasure. And then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. And so by the end of Solomon's really pitiful life, (laughs) it had become pitiful, he'd realized that all of the pleasures, and and as you read Ecclesiastes, he, he sought after wealth beyond, you know, imagining and and humor maybe there's pleasure in humor and maybe there's pleasure in success and having a great business and you know he just so wisely to the end of it all says you know if you have a great huge uh, business then you die and some guy takes it over who you probably don't know and you know doesn't run it the way you want it to and runs it into the ground and ruins your business so if your life is your business you've got problems if your wife if your life is your wife You've got problems. If your life is women, you've got problems. And, and, you know, Solomon had a problem with sexual addiction, and he should have listened to his own proverb. In chapter 27, verse 20 of Proverbs, he says that hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of the man are never satisfied. And just as a man, you know, men have this drive that they're constantly battling and and, you, you know, keeping their members to be used for, for God's glory. And, um, and you know, if you, if you live according to the flesh in that area, you will die. But if by the Spirit, Romans chapter 8 verse 13 says, you mortify the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And uh, I remember when I was a freshman in high school, you know, uh, got, went to my first Calvary camp. It's where my heart was lit on fire for the Lord, but... You know, the first night we had this afterglow and all these teenage boys are confessing lust and yeah, we want to be pure. And our youth pastor read Romans 8 verse 13 and said, but if by the spirit you mortify or put to death the deeds of the flesh, you'll live. And hey guys, every time we start to lust, let's just shout mortify. And, and so pretty soon that next day we're running around the camp and every girl we'd see mortify, oh, mortify, oh, oh, you know, and after five days of that, we're getting on the bus and a girl comes up and goes, we are so sick and tired of you saying that. And you guys think that you don't ever stumble us. And back then it was in style to have your boxer shorts hanging out. I never did. I was a Wranglers guy myself, but no, not really. But, um, you know, do you think your boxer shorts never stumble us? And, but, um, every time I think of Romans eight thirteen, I mortify. So guys, let's do that. But let's use tact as we do, right? Um, and so by the end of Solomon's life, after he had lived for every pleasure and realized that none of it mattered, uh, in chapter 12, verse 13 of Ecclesiastes, he says, let us hear the conclusion of this whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Isn't that incredible that that was at the end of Solomon's life that he wrote that? After he looks back on it all, he remembers the three strikes that the Lord had given him. 
and how he specifically had disobeyed the Lord's commandments. And he's looking back going, I should have obeyed. And now the kingdom is being ripped from my family and the destruction is imminently on the horizon uh, or is, uh, is going to be on the horizon there uh, for Israel. And so sad to see it's come down to this. And then in verse 4, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. And so there was no loyalty there to God. He had he'd become an idolater. And as 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 tells us that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those hearts that are loyal to him, that he can show himself strong on his behalf. And as the, the Lord's eyes are going across this room tonight, are you loyal? Am I loyal? And at times, Solomon's actions seemed loyal, but he had the token prayer and the token goat sacrifice or the token bull sacrifice just to look the part, but his heart was not loyal. And it says at the end of verse 4, as was the heart of his father David. And we see that David is the standard for loyalty, a man after God's own heart and something we keep going over. But the reason, even though he was a failure, The reason he was considered loyal because his heart was what? Always repentant. Always falling back on the mercies of God. Always saying, I've sinned, Lord, forgive me. And so he's the standard, and we're going to see that mentioned many times throughout this chapter, as his father David, or as was David's heart. He's become the standard for loyalty. And so um, verse 5, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And so Ashtoreth, or, or also she's known as Ishtar, after the Babylonian god Ishtar, she's the goddess of sensual love and fertility, and worship, uh, her was always, worship towards her was always noted with sexual immorality and sexual practices. And so here's Solomon who's following after Ishtar or Ashtoreth. And um, he's, he's become immoral in worshiping these goddesses in, with, in this practice. And, um, and then there's Milcom or Molech as this god is also known as. Kind of a bull. Had, had like the face of a bull. But uh, the practices... The worship practice for Milcom was child sacrifice as the hands would be held out on this God over a flame and people would come and put their child in the hands of this God and, and let this child burn and suffer. And Stuart and I were at Quiznos yesterday and we were just talking and I was like, man, isn't it crazy how guys stumble with pornography images, you know, pieces of paper or light flickers from a computer screen that we bow the knee to that and we worship, you know, we we don't worship the Lord by staying holy and worship him in our holiness, but light flickers on a computer screen or on a page or whatever it might be that that causes us to like, oh wow, a page or something, you know, and uh, and then we just were, that progressed to a discussion about how, you know, the Old Testament false gods, you can just look and see similar present day gods that we 
bow down to and worship. And, and you know, the, the God of sensuality today is just so evident, you know, that we bow the knee to pleasure that only lasts a second rather than purity, which, you know, which reaps up treasures, the Lord says, uh, treasures in heaven. And so we bow the knee to the God of sensuality for just a moment of pleasure or for, for, for Milcom's case, the child sacrifice, how people sacrifice their children today through abortion so that they can be happy to appease themselves, the God of self. It's all about self, isn't it? Just like back then, oh, I'm going to sacrifice my child so that it'll rain or that my crop will grow. Now I'm going to sacrifice my child so that I don't have to give up anything of myself and I can just keep living the way I want to live. And it's idolatry is what it is, and it's worshiping the God of self. And there needs to be repentance where we fall into that as um, as Christians. And um, obviously the sacrifice of children was prohibited in Jewish law. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 18. And then verse 6, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. And isn't it just sad to hear that? Because we're going to spend, you know, probably the next year or so uh, reading about these kings that it's just constantly mentioned of the kings that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, wickedness in the sight of the Lord, and the anger of the Lord burned hot against them. And now we're reading this about David's son, Solomon. You know, uh, someone, you know, Solomon was adored by the Lord, it says, when Solomon was born. And um, just to see him going this far, uh, Solomon uh, did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not fully follow the Lord. Here's that standard, as did his father David. He didn't do the Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And, And then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And so... Both of those um, high places that he built, places of worship, were places where child sacrifice took place. And so, so sad to see Solomon a part of building those altars where, um, where children would have been sacrificed to. You actually read about, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 26, you read about um, the king of Moab going to battle against the Israelites and he's losing the battle, and so he offers his firstborn son up as a sacrifice, the son that would have taken his place on the throne, it says there. And, um, and so, so sad that that could have possibly been on one of the altars that Solomon built towards that God. As you read about that in Second Kings chapter 3, verse 26. So building these high places for these false gods... Um, And he did likewise for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. And so, um, man, if you weren't here for uh, 1 Kings chapter 3 when we did a study on being unequally yoked, I'd encourage you to listen to that one as well. But um, verse 9, so the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Ah, I mean, how many of us would just love to see, and, and not, that our, not that I'm any different than Solomon, you know, I got to take heed to myself lest I fall. 
thinking I stand, you know, I constantly am having to, but to see the Lord, you know, Moses wanted to see the Lord and all that he could see the Lord, it was his backside as he was hiding in the cleft of the rock, you know, he got to see the Lord's backside and he shined for days and um, man, to have such an honor that Solomon had there to see the Lord and yet to follow after these other gods, sometimes seeing isn't always believing. Um, And then he uh, the Lord in these two times had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. And we're going to see that happening within this chapter, that the kingdom will be torn away from Solomon and given to his servant. And then uh, verse 12, nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for at the, for the sake of your father, David, I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I've chosen. And so David will still have a throne um, even before the Lord. And, and who's going to sit on that throne in the end? Jesus is going to sit on that throne. He's He's the seed of David who's going to rule and reign um, in his kingdom like we studied on Sunday. When is that kingdom going to happen? We talked about that on Sunday during the millennial reign. And so um, exciting stuff to talk about. Um, and it's just neat how the Lord preserved that. You know, because this is when that could have been wiped out. You know what? No, we're done. We're done with David's line. Forget it, you know. And, um, and yet the promises of the Lord are yes and amen True are his promises, and so yes, a seed is still going to come out of the tribe of Judah. Uh, he has come, actually. He's just going to sit on the throne, uh, finally. Um, verse 14, now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king in Edom. For it happened when David was in Edom that Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain after he'd killed every male in Edom. We know that David set up a garrison there in Edom in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And Joab, his commander, was just going crazy uh, killing these Edomites. Uh, Verse 16, because for six months Joab remained there with all Israel until he'd cut down every male in Edom. That Hadad fled to go to Egypt, uh, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him, Hadad was still a little child. Then they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house, apportioned food for him, and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him as wife the sister of his own wife. That is the sister of Queen Tapanes. <laughs> then the sister of Tapanes bore him Ganubeth, his son, whom Tapanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And what did Ganubeth say when he popped out and saw his dad, the king? He called him by name. Hey, dad. Okay, we'll move right along. Sorry, I, was just, I wasn't Ganu, but I just had to. It just keeps you on your toes, you know what I mean? Um, so... Uh, Hey, dad, heard in Egypt that David, verse 21, rested with his fathers. So David's dead. The great warrior who, who put up a garrison in Edom. Uh, and Joab, the commander of the army, was also dead. So Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart 
that I may go down to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, but what have you lacked with me that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered, nothing, but let me go away anyways. Uh, or let me do it. Let me go away anyway. And God raised up another adversary. So number one adversary was Hadad. Here's number two adversary, verse 23. God raised up another adversary against him, Rezin, the son of Elieda, who had fled from his lord, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. So he gathered men of him and became captain over a band of raiders when David killed those of Zobah, and they went to Damascus and dwelt there and reigned in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Hadad caused. And he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. So a band of raiders there uh, reigning over Syria. Then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zereda, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a woman also, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of his father David. We've talked about the Milo last week. It was a kind of a, a fill-in between two ramps filled in and a garrison made there. It was ultra-protected, and, and they're in the city of David. So uh, the Milo was, was built there. And the man, verse 28, Jeroboam, was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the offer, officer of, over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. And now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, um, the uh, Shalonite, met him on the way. And he had clothed himself with a new garment. So Ahijah, the prophet, clothed himself with a new garment. And the two were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourselves 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give 10 tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel because they've forsaken me and worshiped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the God of the Moabites, and Milcom, the God of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments, as did his father David. And so, interesting, you know, with a lot of the prophets, they would use visual aids. They didn't have PowerPoint back then, you know, and so they would use whatever they had around them to help show the person. And, and in a similar way here, Ahijah gets his robe, chops it up into... 12 pieces, and that was nice of him to use his new robe to do that, and, um, and says, you know, 10 of these are for you. And then it reminds me of uh, when King Saul had the kingdom ripped away from him. And you remember that um, Samuel rebuked him and told him, you know what? You're done. God's done with you. He's giving your, your kingdom away to a man after his own heart. And as Samuel is walking away, what did Saul do? grabbed a hold of his robe and ripped it, rip. And, uh, and Samuel turned around and said, this day the Lord has just ripped the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one after his own heart. And, um, and so the Lord's used robes before to get his point across. And, um, 
And then uh, verse 35, but I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you 10 tribes. And to his son, I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I've chosen for myself to put my name there. And as you remember, uh, people always called David the lamp of Israel. And even his seed is a lamp. Um, and so there will, there will still be that, that kingdom there, a, a light. So I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart's desires. So this is, this is to, to Jeroboam now. Remember that. This is, this is a prophecy from the Lord uh, to Jeroboam. So I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart's desire. And you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did. There's that standard again. Then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the, the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. And, uh, and it, doesn't it just seem like, well, first of all, does that sound familiar to you? It's the same warning that was given to Solomon is now given to Jeroboam. And, uh, but doesn't it just seem like the Lord is just looking for anybody? <laughs> He's just looking for anybody that he can trust. He's looking for anybody that is loyal. And Second, Second, Second Chronicles chapter 16, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth, searching for someone who's loyal, that he can show himself strong on their behalf. And, uh, and so here, here's someone that seems like he'll be loyal, and the Lord gives him a chance. And notice verse 39, that he's not going to afflict uh, the descendants of David forever. And um, I'm just reminded of Romans chapter 11, where we see the future for Israel that God's not done with Israel or Judah, for that matter. In this case, it's it's both of it's it's both of those tribes, if you will. It's both of those nations. And if you'll look in Romans chapter eleven, verse twenty-five, just the promise to the Lord about Israel that He won't afflict David forever. But in Romans eleven twenty-five, it says, "For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion." that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion or the Messiah will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so one day, Israel is going to look on him whom they pierce, Zechariah tells us, and they will mourn that they killed the Messiah. They're going to see him come down and set his feet on the Mount of Olives, and they're going to be so sorrowful like they'd weep over their firstborn child because they rejected the Messiah. And yet, they have this opportunity to have a soft heart and to be saved as the deliverer comes out of Zion there. And... uh, Verse 40, Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt. So Shishak, king of Egypt, or to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So Jeroboam flees down there to Egypt. Verse 41, now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did 
and his wisdom? Are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. So he was anywhere from 15 to 20, maybe 25 when he became king. And so probably died around the age of 60. And remember the promise that was there, that if he would obey the Lord, he would live a long life. And, uh, and yet, you know, probably died before he was 60 or around that age. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So Rehoboam is now set up and becomes the king. Right now he's the king of Israel and Judah, but this next chapter we're going to see he becomes, he's just the king of Judah, actually. So, um, so maybe now that we're at the end of Solomon's life, maybe now you want to go and read the Proverbs afresh. Uh, or read Ecclesiastes uh, afresh and just kind of hear those thoughts and words of Solomon. Um, chapter 12, let's see where are we at. Yeah, I think we can do her. Um, and Rehoboam, so Rehoboam is Solomon's son, the grandson of David, the great-grandson of Jesse. I like to do genealogies in my head. Um, and uh, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. And so it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he'd fled from the presence of King Solomon and been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. And so he said to them, depart for three days and then come back to me. And the people departed. So, uh, you know, apparently they felt like they had a heavy hand on them from Solomon. And that, that heavy hand was probably this incredible tax burden that Solomon had imposed on the people to build all of these buildings that he was building, the temple and to build his houses and Pharaoh's daughter's house and then all these other houses for these other wives and a house that he had in Lebanon and all of these things. And, um, and not to mention the forced labor that he used from the, the, uh, the Israelites. And so they're just like, man, we're, we're ready to be done with all of these building projects. Can we have a little break here? Rehoboam, and so he gave him three days, uh, or give me three days, he says, and I'll, I'll think about this request of yours. And then King Rehoboam consulted the elders, verse 6, who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them, and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. So what wise, incredible counsel he's given here. You know, if you will be a servant, and man, I'm just reminded of Jesus' words, that greatness, you know, in his eyes is through being a servant. It's not through ruling with a rod of iron and pushing people's necks down with your thumb and just, you know, stepping on people all that you can to get to the top of the business or corporate ladder, you know. But greatness comes through being a servant. And joy comes through being a servant as well. And so there's just incredible 
wisdom here, wisdom that Jesus constantly was telling his disciples about as they would argue with each other, you know, about who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And that would prompt Jesus to discuss that, you know, the, the, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them with that rod of iron. But that's not how it's to be in the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, greatness comes through being a servant. And there's just so much. That's such, such a beautiful study in and of itself uh, that we could be servants. And, and so good counsel, wouldn't you agree? Be their servant and serve them. And uh, the world says, uh, well, we're going to read what the world says. Verse 8, immediately he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what advice do you give? How should we answer this people have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke that your fathers put on us. Then the young men who'd grown up with them spoke to him saying, thus you should speak to this people who've spoken to you saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. And so Rehoboam here very foolishly rejects the counsel of these wise elders to be a servant and listens to the youth, his, his peers, young men. And it's interesting that Solomon's Proverbs The whole book, Proverbs, you know what the theme of it is? Wisdom for young men. That's the theme of Proverbs, wisdom for young men. And time and time again, and for instance, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, and you guys all have heard it, Solomon says this, My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. For they will be graceful ornaments on your head and chains about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. So who was Proverbs written to? You know, of course it's written to us, but my son, who's that talking to? Rehoboam. (laughs) Rehoboam, here's a great opportunity for you to, to listen to this inspired book that, you know, Number one, it's given to you. You're the son of Solomon. And all throughout Proverbs, we're given keys about wisdom. And Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. And notice that in verse 8 here, he had rejected the counsel of the elders before he'd even heard what his friends had said. It wasn't like he was weighing the two options. He heard option number one, be a servant, and thought, I'm a king. No, thank you. (laughs) You know, I've seen my dad's kingdom, and I'm kind of liking that whole totally wealthy sort of thing he had going on. And uh, no, thank you. So he rejected it. He was wise in his own eyes, just completely disregarding wisdom that had come from his father. But he who heeds counsel is wise. Do you guys recall a time in your life that you've had to, to get counsel? 
Think of it right now. Just think. When is a time when you had to get counsel? And maybe think of who wise counselors are in your life right now. Who are those wise counselors? It's always good to have those people just always there. You can always go and, and talk to them. And man, I've been so blessed. Uh, you know, I have a, a friend in Corvallis. His name's Kurt, and he's the administrative pastor there in Corvallis. And, and when I think of wise counsel, I think of Kurt. And, um, and as blessed as I am to have Kurt, now that I'm in a new season of my life, we've gone through a season recently with the elders where we've sought the Lord and we've had to make decisions recently. And I'm so thankful for the wise counsels that I have in the elders of this church. And as we've gone through this season, the temp, you know, not a temptation, it would have not been wrong, but to, to call up my wise counselor, Kurt, and to just say, hey, what do you think about this? And I just kept feeling the Lord saying to me, you know, Rory, he is wise, and there will be times when you can go to him, but I think this is a season where you as elders can get together and pray and cry out to the Lord and seek unity amongst yourselves. And, um, and just the Lord has just been so faithful with that. I'm so thankful to have the elders in this body, the wise counselors here. And, uh, and as we met in my house one night to really late, I've been talking a lot about uh, memory verses that I'm trying to memorize. And to be honest with you, ever, ever since I wrote like for like three days memory verses, I haven't really kept doing that. So I really want to. Lindsay found some new cool markers for me. And so I'm going to keep trying to keep writing out verses and putting them all over the house. But one of those verses... On my refrigerator that night was Proverbs 24, 6. For by wise counsel, you will wage your own war. And in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. And as we were there as elders, I pointed up there. I was like, hey, guys, I'm just so thankful. You know, here we are just seeking the Lord together and wise counselors together. And so we see that Rehoboam rejected the sage wisdom, the wisdom that comes with age. I don't know why they call it sage. Maybe because it rhymes with age. Who knows? I bet if I looked it up, I'd find out. But who wants to do that? Uh, Sage wisdom that comes with age. Um, You know, the young people, you know, young men, man, we've got vision and we've got excitement and we've got a go-to get-her-done attitude. And yet, so often, the the elderly have such wisdom, and they've experienced things, and they're able to say, you know, you may want to think about doing it this way. Um, And and maturity comes with age. And turn to James chapter 3, verse 13. There's just a, a great word for us on wisdom. You know, in chapter 1 of James, we're told to ask for wisdom. If anyone among you is lacking wisdom, ask for wisdom. The Lord's going to give you that wisdom, but receive that wisdom without doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave tossed about by the sea. And so, but there's another just warning and, and, and I guess piece of advice for us as we're praying about what is wise. In James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, it says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So someone who's exercising wisdom, they're going to have good conduct. They're going to have meekness. 
Are, were we seeing this in that young group of counselors that Rehoboam had? No, we weren't seeing this. But, but there's meekness. There's good conduct. Verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. You know, and, and so test your wisdom. Is there bitterness? Is there envy? Is there self-seeking in your heart? Is there boasting? Is there lying against the truth? Then that is not wisdom. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly and sensual and demonic. (laughs) For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So just good thing to remember as you're making difficult decisions in your life. Go to James chapter 3 verse 13 and read that. Is it really wisdom what I'm about to do? Is it really wisdom that I tell these people who have come and, and ask for peace and want to be a kingdom with me? You know, is it really wisdom to say, ah, my little pinky finger is going to be the size of my father's waist, you know, and, 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 you know, he put a yoke on you. I'm going to add to that yoke and he whipped you. I'm going to whip you with a scourge with a cat of nine tails you know, his whip was just a piece of leather. I'm going to scourge you with pieces of glass and bone and metal on the end of my whip and it's going to hurt even worse, you know, and, um, and that's not exactly how you win friends, um. Just want you to know. He, he should have probably read James chapter 3, verse 13. But um, let's go ahead and read what happened here. So verse 12, so Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had directed, saying, come back to me the third day. Then the king answered the people roughly, roughly, and he rejected the advice with, which, advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips. I will chastise you with scourges. Or it literally means scorpions. It speaks of the sting of a scorpion. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord. And so we'll just pause right there for a second. But he was rough with them. He was rough. He spoke harshly with them. And He should have remembered the words of his father in Proverbs chapter 15. And this is good for all of us, especially those that are married. A soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word provokes anger. How do you guys think this is going to go down here? 1 Kings chapter 12. (laughs) Okay, we're going to read about it. Um, And so the king did not listen to the people. But notice this, verse 15, for the turn of events was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So we see God sovereignly working through the hardness of men's hearts. He sovereignly can work through attacks of Satan and things like that to accomplish his purposes. And that was a whole study we did back in 2 Samuel. Um, and so in verse 16... Now, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, what share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. 
to your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. And so here we have verbatim the words that Sheba spoke to Judah when, G- uh, when David was coming back from the wilderness. Remember, he fled after Absalom, his son, tried to attack him or did attack them. And as he came back a victor into Jerusalem, uh, Judah led him into the town. But Israel met him and Israel was angry that Judah got to bring David into the kingdom, uh, into Jerusalem. And so there was a big argument there. There was a fight and um, Sheba led this rebellion and, and said the same thing that we read here. Uh, you can read about it in 2 Samuel 20. And so they say, to your tents, O Israel. That's always the shout of a rebellion right there. To your tents. I don't know what that does, but uh, go home and think about it. <laughs> you know, maybe it's go home and clean your guns, you know, sharpen your swords. We're going to, we're going to fight, you know? And so uh, Israel again is, is the rebel in this case, you know, in the American civil war, it's easy to remember the South was the rebel. And of course, you know, they'll say it's the war of Northern aggression, you know, and I'm not going to argue with them. Um, but in the Israeli case, uh, it was the northern kingdom that were, that were the, the rebels. And so from this point on, division gets worse and worse. And so you see uh, the southern part, Judah there, it's shaded a little uh, more mustardy color. And then you've got Israel up at the top. That's how the kingdom was divided. Uh, Judah was a huge, a huge tribe. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, you know, and so from this point, division just gets worse and worse. 200 years later from this point, the northern kingdom, Israel, is going to be taken captive by who? Who's going to take them captive? Uh, Assyria, whoever said Babylon, you're you're so close. Uh, Assyria takes Israel captive, and the prophets tried to warn Israel, and we're going to see why they were taken captive tonight. Uh, And because they were idolatrous, an idolatrous nation, Assyria takes Israel captive, and then a hundred years later, uh, after that, Judah is taken captive by Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. And so after that point, Israel is never the same. And you can read in Daniel chapter 2 about the prophecy of the image. Uh, You can read about all the different kingdoms that are going to kind of have control over Israel all the way from Babylon or you know, Babylon to uh, the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and eventually uh, a revised Roman Empire in the end times. And that's all a fun study we'll get to someday in Daniel. But, um, But what's interesting is Israel never was the same after this point. They never were the same. They never were a united kingdom until when? What's that? Yeah, buddy. <laughs> Woo. Yes, May 14th, 1948. Was anybody here alive to see that? May 14th, 1948. Wow. That's incredible. Lois wasn't. Oh, do you remember Lois? You were 20 years old. Do you, do you guys remember that being an important event at the time? You remember it being an important event? Anybody else realize like the prophetic uh relevance of Israel becoming a nation. It was May 14th, 1948, that the prophetic stop clock started again. 
Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, back in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed, God's prophecy stop clock stopped. Jerusalem was no more. Israel was no more. It couldn't continue until it had become a nation again uh, in 1948. In, in 1948, it's a, it's a unified nation. It's sovereign. To this day, it's, it's one. In fact, um, people don't even know what tribe they're from. If you're Jewish, you're, you're Jewish. Except there's one name, and I, I tried to remember what it was. There's one name that survived the destruction of the temple, and, um, and it's, it's known to be a Levitical Jewish name, and it's believed that that name is going to be part of serving in the temple um, when the Antichrist builds the temple again. And I remember my buddy Chris Cross and I were at McDonald's, and we saw that name on a plumbing truck. We go, should we go knock on the plumbing truck and tell them that, uh, you know, He's going to be, his family is going to be the people that'll be the, that, the, the Levitical priesthood there in Revelation. And um, we said, well, we probably shouldn't tell him that. We should just tell him to get saved and then he can escape all of that. But um, I know I kind of got off on a tangent there. You guys are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. I don't either. I'm sorry about that. Um, should we get back into the word? I don't know. Maybe that's a good idea. Uh, how about we go to, to uh, verse, where are we, 17, verse 17, right, right. Seventeen. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel, okay, who dwelt in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of revenue or taxes, but all Israel stoned him with stones. So apparently they didn't want to be taxed, you think? And he died. Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to that day, to this day, but to that day. Now it happened, now it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none who followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. Then when Rehoboam came out of Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and here we have just a kind of a confusing section. We have Judah being assembled with the tribe of Benjamin. And in the last chapter, we also see that Simeon was also linked to Judah. And so to what extent that is, I'm not sure. But the tribe of Benjamin, here we see links to Judah, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So Rehoboam wants to go fight. And he has Be- uh, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, to help him fight. Uh, but the word of God, verse 22, came to Shemaiah, the, son of God, uh, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. And so a, a nice submission there from Rehoboam. Um, you know, as the Lord says, don't go to war. I'm sovereignly working through this division. Uh, it's my plan. Don't go to war. And it's so nice to see them yield uh, to the Lord there. Um, and so we, we did have, um, I just wanted to touch on that again. We have Judah in the south, we had Israel in the north, and, and ten kingdoms in the north there, and yet 
there's, there's kind of some confusion there as Benjamin was united with Judah and so was Simeon in a sense because the border lines over the years had kind of marred together so that Judah and Simeon and Benjamin were all kind of the same. And then you have the Levites who they didn't have land anyways. And so at first, some of the Levites went down south to Judah. Some of the Levites went up north to Israel. And so um, nevertheless, I'm sure that there was a good section because uh, I take the word of God at, as it stands of, of those 10 tribes being Israel. So um, when all else fails, just go, go right back to the word there. Um, then we have uh, verse 25, and we will cruise through uh, the sin of Jeroboam here. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim. And I just have that circled uh, there so you kind of have an idea where that is. And that's the same place where uh, um, Rehoboam had his inaugural service there. Kind of a, it's kind of a special place there. It's a place where Abraham built an altar and worshipped when he first came into the promised land. It's where Joseph's bones are buried. And um, so... Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also, he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of these people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And so he conceives sin in his heart, just as James says, that's how sin is conceived. Because, you know, at first it, it doesn't seem all that bad. He's thinking in his heart, oh no, it's time to, to worship. Where are we going to worship? We, we want to go back to Jerusalem, but I know if we go back to Jerusalem, they're going to miss their brethren. They're going to see the glory of Rehoboam, the glory of the temple, and they're going to go and they're going to follow after Rehoboam. And so that wasn't the bad part. The bad part was his way of solving this issue. In verse 28, therefore the king asked advice. And I don't know who he got advice from, but that guy should be stoned. The advice was make two calves of gold and say, and say to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. And so to this day, you can go to Dan and you can see the, the ruins of Tel Dan and there's, there's kind of a square-shaped area there, which is, I uh, believe, that's where the calves were set up on the platform. And, uh, and so, um, some think that Jeroboam made two calves as symbols of what Yahweh rides on in victory. I don't know where they got that. Some think that it was calves because in Revelation, you see that there's, there's a cherubim has a, a shape of a calf at times. Calves symbolizing strength. And yet, uh, regardless of the case, we see just clear-cut idolatry as, what does he say? Here are your gods. So the intent of his heart may have been, let's worship God. But in the same way that Aaron, is the same words actually, he quotes Aaron. Aaron said that exact thing. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And what they wanted to do, remember with Aaron, they got tired of waiting for Moses to come down, and they wanted to worship. And so their, their heart was to worship Yahweh. In fact, Aaron says that. Let's make a feast to Yahweh here. 
and yet they didn't worship God in spirit and in truth. Okay, so that's the issue here. The issue isn't breaking commandment number one, setting up other gods. The issue is breaking commandment number two, which is making graven images and worshiping those. Okay, so that was, that was the sin here. And uh, let's go ahead and read those words of Aaron. I'll just read them to you for the sake of time. Uh, Exodus 32, 7, the Lord said to Moses, Get down, go get down there, for your people whom you brought to the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way I've commanded them. They've made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so whenever we aren't worshipping God in truth, you might be trying to worship God, but he must be worshipped in truth. Then just as uh, the Lord tells Moses, you're corrupting yourself. And so there's corruption happening here in Jeroboam. And even today, we worship him biblically. And whenever we try to worship him other ways, extra biblically, by vomiting in the spirit or by getting the gold dust, you know, or by swinging from the chandelier, you know, whatever, uh, if, if we're worshiping the Lord not according to his word, then we're in error. We need to worship him in, in spirit and in truth. And so it's a, it's a good warning to us there. Uh, Jer- Jeroboam's golden bovines here. And what about crosses? Just real quick. What about crosses? What about having a cross here? Crosses aren't bad until you start praying to the cross or worshiping the cross. And man, I always just am reminded I'm worshiping the one who hung on the cross. I'm not worshiping the object or anything like that. Uh, I'm worshiping the one who hung on the cross, and I'm not even using the cross um, as a as a, an image uh, of the Lord. There, so um, verse thirty. Now this thing became a sin for the people. Went to worship before the one as far as Dan, the northern end of the kingdom. He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. So tons of different types of people became priests and yet not Levites. And you read in the the parallel chapter, 2 Chronicles 11. Let me read this uh, and you can flip over there. Let's do it quick for the sake of time. 2 Chronicles 11, 13. As you're flipping there, by Jeroboam making other other tribes and other men priests, he was in direct violation of God's covenant with Levi in Numbers 25.10. And notice that God hadn't been breaking his covenant through all this. He'd been keeping his covenant uh, with David, and he, he's keeping his covenant with Levi. And, um, and as a result, we're going to read the priests, the real priests, the Levitical priests, fled to Judah. And so, um, and so 2 Chronicles 11, 13, and from all their territories, the priests and the Levites who weren't, who were in all Israel took their stand with him for the Levites left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem for Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. Then he appointed for himself priests for the high places for the demons and the calf idols, which he had made. And so this false system of worship that was convenient for Jeroboam was demonic in its essence. And it was, it was all for um, Jeroboam. And, 
and, uh, and they were calf idols. And then verse 16, after the Levites left, those from the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong for three years because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. And so some people were freaked out by these calf idols that were set up. And so they came to worship in Jerusalem and Judah's numbers were strengthened. And then let's read the rest of that, verse 18 um, there in Second Chronicles. The uh, Rehoboam took for himself as wife, Mahaleth, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David, and, Av, and of Abihail, the daughter of Eliah, the son of Jesse. And she bore him children, Jehu, Shemariah, and Zaham. And after her, he took Mekah, the granddaughter of Absalom, and she bore him Abijah, Atai, Ziza, and Shilamite. Now Rehoboam loved Micah, Mekah, the granddaughter of Absalom, more than all his wives and his concubines, for he took 18 wives and 60 concubines and begot 28 sons and 60 daughters. So uh, less wives and concubines than his dad. And Rehoboam appointed Abijah, the son of Mekah's chief, to be leaders among his brothers, for he intended to make him king. He dealt wisely and dispersed some of his sons throughout all the territories of Judah and Benjamin, to every fortified city, and he gave them provisions in abundance. He also sought many wives for them. And so uh, just a little more history that's not there in First Kings. And then let's just finish the chapter, um, chapter 12. Um, verse 32, Jeroboam ordained a feast on the, uh, that's back in First Kings chapter 12, verse 32. Jeroboam, Jeroboam ordained a feast in the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah and offered sacrifices on the altar, so he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he'd made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings in the altar which he'd made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifice on the altar and burnt incense. And so... Amos chapter 7 verses 10 through 12 have a judgment spoken out um, against Jeroboam's system that he had set up. And it just, uh, you can read that on your own, Amos chapter 7 verse 10. And so as we close, you know, one of my weaknesses has always been understanding the order of the kings. And so I'm excited to be going through this and understanding the king's works and all that. And so we're going to be putting together kind of a a family tree sort of thing, but more of a, a king kingdom tree. And eventually we'll get to the prophets as well as this, to which prophets ministered during which time of Israel and Judah's. And so, um, and so this is, uh, this is small and next week it'll, it'll grow. We'll, next week we'll, we'll add to it already. So we have, um, Saul, the first king, he begot Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth's kingdom was handed over to David, uh, and then uh, David had a few sons. He had Adonijah, who tried to take over his kingdom from him, you know, a work of his flesh. He had Absalom, who tried to take over his kingdom from him, a work of his flesh. But the Lord had ordained Solomon, the, uh, I believe he was the youngest son, um, no, I believe there was, one, there was one more son after Solomon, but not who normally would be the king. But uh, so power was transferred from David to Solomon. And then here we are in this chapter to Rehoboam. And, and so in the green here, 
uh, is the first, um, the first king of the divided kingdom there of Judah, okay? So, uh, and then we have also here the first king beginning for Israel, Jeroboam. And isn't it fun? Doesn't it make it easy that it's Jeroboam and Rehoboam? And if that doesn't confuse you, I don't know what will. It's like Elisha and Elijah. It's like, really? <laughs> we couldn't have just given them a nickname to make it easier on all of us. And so, um, and so uh, Israel in the red, the king is Jeroboam, okay? First king of Judah, Rehoboam. And so we're going to start quizzing ourselves at the end of every study, and we're going we're gonna to grow together. We're going to learn the kings. So... Uh, come on up, Stuart, and uh, maybe if, if Frank, you could go grab the, the kids. They can come in and just close down worship with us, and we'll close with some more. You can put your Bibles aside. And, and Lord, we just, um, we're just sobered tonight, just thinking about what happens when you build your house upon the, uh, the house upon the sand. And Lord, you just say that a wise man builds his house upon the rock. The rock, Lord. We want to build our houses tonight upon your word, upon your commandments and your testaments. And Lord, we thank you for your grace. And yet we understand at the same time that, that there's consequences from disobedience and And Lord, we just pray that you would help us, Lord, by your spirit. Help us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And Lord, I just, from the bottom of my heart, just, I don't want this to be lip service to you, but Lord, I just plead with you that you would help me not to compromise. Lord, that you'd help me to finish strong. And you'd help all of us to finish strong. And Just where Solomon compromised in one area, it just grew like leaven, leavening the whole lump. Lord, keep us from sin. Lord, may may the standard of David be the standard of these people in this room tonight. That we've walked like David and while while we fail, a righteous man sins seven times a day and yet rises again. Lord, we, wanna, we don't want to just stay meddling in our sin, but Lord, we just want to confess it to you and be cleansed and healed tonight. Lord, we thank you that where we have failed, Lord, your blood washes away our sin. Thank you for your grace, Lord, that covers a multitude of sins. We just pray where we fail, Lord, you would just restore the years that the locusts have eaten, God. We love you, Lord. And Lord, where we've been worshiping you just falsely and not in truth. and We want our songs to be doctrinally accurate, Lord. We want our posture and our our order of our service to be well pleasing to you Lord as you're a God of order and we never want the, the attention to get on 
us or on a relic or on a statue or on a a cross or a symbol, Lord. But we put our attention on you, Jesus. We just love you, Lord. Just tonight, Lord, just do a purifying work in us and set our feet on the rocks tonight, Lord. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.